Hello and welcome to Woman Up, the podcast series by Desperate Art Wives. Woman Up is a podcast talking to women artists, creatives, art critics, feminist historians, activists and more. The series was conceived by Desperate Art Wives founder Amy Dignam in collaboration with me, Susan Merrick. Desperate Art Wives is a platform established in 2010 for women artists who are also mothers and carers. Amy's work focuses on domestic disorder, unsteady identity, power and dysfunction. And I'm an artist interested in feminism, language, power and access. In this platform, we share conversations with women that inspire us and our work, whilst producing a long-form content of resources for other people to access. Hello and welcome to Woman Up, the podcast series by Desperate Art Wives. I'm Susan Merrick, and today I'm joined by the fantastic Jenny Klein. Jenny Klein is a professor of art history at Ohio University. She's the co-editor, along with Meryl Chernick, of the M Word, Real Mothers in Contemporary Art, published in 2011. In 2014, she and Chernick chaired TFAP at CAA, Day of Panels, which was also themed around maternity and motherhood. She's recently published several essays on art and the maternal, including Feminist Art and Motherhood, an Overview in the Rutledge Companion to Motherhood, Maternal Metaphors 1 and 2, A Labour of Mother Love in the Maternal in Creative Work, both co-authored with Meryl Chernick as well, and The Mother Without Child, The Child Without Mother, Miriam Shares interrogation of maternal ideology, reproductive trauma and death in inappropriate bodies. Hello, Jenny. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm so excited to talk to you. That wonderful um, introduction, which I, there's so much there, but I know it only captures a a very short period of your um, long career with a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm excited to yeah dig a bit deeper um but first of all Jenny um I want to start with a little lighter question um although before I go there I'll, I'm going to go back slightly again just to give a little bit of context to our listeners which I don't normally do because it, it doesn't really matter what political climate we're in really for the podcast but um we're recording remotely, which I often do with the interviews, um, but it, it's slightly more um, poignant at the moment because we are in the middle of um, the COVID-19 global pandemic, which I think is important because it's probably going to come up in our conversation today. So it's important for the listeners to know when we're recording, which is the 30th of March 2020, and um, and what's going on. Yes, I would, I would agree um, with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I had a little look on Instagram and Twitter just to have a little uh, more recent information about you, Jenny, a little bit of stalking on social media. <laughs> and so my, my first question for you is, what's your favorite, yoga, cats or wine? Oh, what, <laughs> what a very tough question. So I have one cats. I teach yoga. And one of the yoga classes I normally teach is a yoga and wine class. So, I, I mean, I guess because I love the cats, that would be my absolute favorite. But um, I also probably love yoga and wine equally, as do many people, um, because the yoga okay. and wine class is very popular. So they come in, they have some wine. We're very careful about not doing anything that, you know, could tip you over. Um, so it's more of a relaxing class. And um, then 
they leave and they come back the following month. Although, unfortunately, Yoga and Wine this month is canceled, obviously, because um, all the gyms and all the yoga studios are closed here in the United States, or at least here in Ohio, but I think here across the United States. Yeah, we're the same in the UK, but that class sounds amazing. I'm, I don't think we have anything like that here, and I'm really, really jealous because I'm a big lover of yoga, wine, and cats myself, so that's why I asked that question. <laughs> well, I should just add that we also have here in, um, at least in the Midwest, but I think across the country, goat yoga, and I happen to be friends with one of the um, Columbus-based instructors that teaches goat yoga and she does it in conjunction with a farm you have to register quite a bit in advance because they're very popular classes um and according to dana the goat yoga instructor the goats tell you which goats actually want to be part of goat yoga and which goats don't want to be part of goat yoga some goats are just not suited for it some goats are suited for it um, and apparently the goats you know, kind of do their thing, which is climb on people, but they also poop. <laughs> so, but they're completely different. When I heard that, I wasn't, I'm like, I think yoga and wine is better. I mean, the worst thing we ever do is have a wine spill. <laughs> and there's always more. And it, it, it is the, it, where I, where I teach it, it is the costly. People just pay for the cost of the class or it's free for members. So it's, it's just a nice way to, to relax on a Friday evening. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so completely unrelated to all of my academic accomplishments. <laughs> yeah. But we, it's, I think it's good for us to have other lives as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to know about your background, Jenny, but I think I'm going to start by asking something. Um, so I kind of cheated a little bit. I, um, I looked through, I looked through your, that catalogue of books and articles, and I think I could talk to you for a very long time. I've got a huge interest in gender theory myself and queer theory, but mm-hmm. I am not as um, uh, I haven't spent as long in academia. Uh, I, did, I did sociology, and then um, for three years at university, first time round, then I became a sign language interpreter, and then I did um, my MA five years ago, where I came back to theoretical research so i i had this long time in between but it's it's an area i'm quite passionate about and would like to um uh absorb your brain um but a, a friend of mine um I, w- I was chatting to her and she was throwing up some thoughts about this current situation we're in with covid19 and we were wondering about gender theory in relation to this mm-hmm. so my, my first question is um well my first academic question i guess mm-hmm. if you're thinking about gender theory and the body in light of COVID-19 and the social response, the social distancing, the isolation we're doing, how do you feel that gender comes into play within this situation? Well, there's the sort of obvious thing, which is that, you know, how do you handle yourself as a, a sexual being in society and of course suddenly we're in this um kind of epidemic which tells us that we we can't touch we can't touch one another and um actually since you brought up the fact that 
Um, I am a yoga teacher. I will say that one of the biggest things for people who come to yoga is even just being touched, getting adjustments, sometimes getting massages, but that feeling of contact. Uh, but I think mm-hmm. it also raises other issues that are not so um, readily apparent. Of course, a, a lot of what's been written around COVID has been, and it's just all coming out. And in fact, um, there's there have been some very interesting crowdsourced bibliographies and syllabi um, that have been appeared recently. But another issue that's not so, that hasn't really been so readily apparent in uh, the discussion around what's going on right now is, first of all, what are the politics in the home? Um, who are, you know, who might be confined to the home? With whom might be, might they be confined? Um, is there uh, more potential for violence, um, for sexual abuse? And then, Uh, I'm also very interested in the way in which this pandemic plays out against other pandemics um, in terms of how we understand where it originates from, what kind of um, racial discourses, which of course isn't gender necessarily, but they're very closely related, but what kinds of um, discourses come out of our belief in the West, at least, that this originated from an Asian country, what kinds of orientalizing um, uh, types of tropes are brought to bear. And then, of course, having uh, done quite a bit of work on um, art in the age of AIDS and looked a lot at that pandemic, um, I'm interested in the way in which this pandemic um, is structured as opposed to the AIDS pandemic. Um, of course, with AIDS, you didn't really get it by touching. You had to have closer contact. There was also a big difference, too, which was that if you got it, at least in the beginning, you you were going to die. Much you knew you would die. There were some very, very rare exceptions. And yet there wasn't the same kind of concern about isolating people and stopping things because of the population that first seemed to be affected by AIDS. And there were also some very kinds of strange things written about how heterosexual people were more safe. And so I'm, I'm wondering or kind of thinking about how we might, in fact, gender, a pandemic, and actually I'm planning a summer course around that theme. So um, probably I could I could answer your question much, much better um, in a few months. <laughs> but I have been I have been looking at things and reading things. Uh, JSTOR has a really great um, collection all free of how we understand pandemics, um, whether it was the Spanish flu, um, SARS, um, swine flu, or syphilis, or herpes, or um, AIDS slash HIV infection, HIV positivism. So um, I don't know if that completely answers your question, but I think it's I think it's a very interesting thing to to think about as well. Um, also, who's safe and who's not in this pandemic? Um, how we treat the elderly is is very important. Do we um, and how we treat the disabled? 
Um, all of these are, are kind of closely related to, to gender as well. I find they're all, there's, 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 um, commonalities across the, across the various areas. Thank you, Jenny. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting and, and hits on some of the things that I was thinking about, but all, and, and you mentioned the similarities, um, similarities, but very big differences as well between, um, HIV and, and, and a pandemic such as this, mm-hmm. um, which some people have been talking about not wanting to go anywhere near that kind of analogy because it was so different. But I think it, as you talk about it, it's useful to consider mm-hmm. that when you're thinking about how people are divided and how people are, um, or, or, you know, how something is, is potentially ignored in some situations within some groups of people. Mm-hmm. And, and then some, like this is so hugely blown up. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another question relating to the current issue, which is in terms of social distancing, again, this was in a chat with a colleague, um, and it's something that I've been thinking about, um, actually in terms of environmentalism, Mm -hmm. um, I totally, totally on board with the, with pushes to reduce carbon and, and change how we live globally. Absolutely necessary. Um, one, I really think that gender needs to be part of the conversation more because I fear that, for example, within environmental, huge environmental, um, changes, if things are done too quickly, I believe that it's not going to be done well if you're not looking at gender as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that women will us to be hit and I think that that links to this question in terms of how does something like this the social distancing the isolation how does it impact differently on men and women or non-binary people mm-hmm. in terms of hierarchy divisions of labor do you think that those are accentuated uh, or can they be dissolved in a situation like this uh, well, this is what's interesting to me one of the largest divisions in this particular um, situation has been that of class and to some degree, um, ethnicity and, um, I guess national status. If you are a refugee or an immigrant, um, oftentimes you are also, um, as you are trying to kind of make your way in a new country, doing the worst work. So one thing that's been a real concern to me is that we have people on the front line that are still delivering our groceries. They're actually collecting our groceries at the Kroger. They're there checking, you know, selling us groceries, delivering other kinds of services. Well, we as white collar people are able to largely avoid the social contact and um, generally, those people are the ones that are already much more vulnerable, um, kind of a paycheck away from um, from losing uh, basically everything they own. Um, of course, in terms of of gender, uh, many women are in that position as well, and so that obviously needs to be taken into account. If you're a single mother, it's a very different. Um, situation because you are expected to care for, now you suddenly you have to care for children that are at home. Um, you also might still be working, providing necessary services. And I, so on the one hand, this has been a very easy transition 
for people that have what we call in the United States white collar jobs. On the other hand, this has been a very, very difficult transition for people who don't, or even people who did, but whose jobs were tied with the service industry. Like, for example, the uh, cruise ship industry, which now, of course, has taken a nosedive. The airlines, um, it's a very, very tenuous situation for them. And I think, I mean, hopefully we can open up the economy. I know that they're working as hard as they can to get um, some kind of a vaccination for this, but it is um, it is worrisome. Also, in terms of the elderly, um, you know, my own mother is quite, she's 81 years old, and um, she's quite nervous about having that social, con- having that contact oftentimes um, you do, the, the elderly are already fairly isolated, and now we have to isolate them even more. So, um, again, it's, it's not simply related to gender, but has a lot of commonality, and certainly gender is a factor. Um, in terms of what's been happening with the environment, I think it's, it's something to consider. But we almost need to take the Donna Haraway approach in the book, Staying with the Troubles. Um, are you, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but Haraway's argument, of course, Haraway is a, a very well-known thinker and, and speaker on these subjects, but Haraway's argument is that what we need to do is, over time, get the population back down so that there becomes um, a more a, a state that's more balanced. And um, I think that that makes, or a you know, homogenous state, I guess you would call it, but I think that that makes a lot more sense saying we just stop it and then we also stop people's incomes. Um, but rather, um, we are um, rethinking how do you, you know, how do you have children? How do you, what are the politics of care? I mean, right now it's kind of everyone for themselves. Uh, you're not, you, you either can pay for kit for childcare. You can't, can we think of childcare as being done by communities? Can we think of networks of kinship? And I think these are both post-human ideas, but also profoundly feminist ideas that kind of strike to the heart of the matter. Um, so I also uh, wanted to mention that um, I am editing, assuming the ecosexual position about the work of um, Elizabeth Stevens and Annie Sprinkle. And a lot of what they do is about rethinking our relationship to the earth and um, oftentimes creating a very kind of a humorous situation, but also understanding the, the earth as sexual, but, or understanding the kind of sexuality of the earth, but, but even more importantly, looking at how we do environmentalism from a very post-humanist standpoint. So trying to understand what it might mean beyond the human when we, we do these things and how we can, how we can get to a new point in in this world and maybe it takes something like this actually um the black plague which decimated europe for many years did in fact i i wouldn't want that to happen and even though the coronavirus is really terrible it's not as just completely terrible as the black plague but it did in fact because of the loss of population allow for a lot of new growth and so maybe that will happen from this, hopefully not with anywhere near the percentage of, of death. 
I suppose so. I wonder, have I got rational fears when I immediately start thinking of post-war periods when women are pushed or encouraged or restricted so that they are more in the home in terms of regrowing population or helping to balance the economic situation by being the ones that are not working so that the jobs are available for the white collar male workers who are there. You know, am I, am I being rational in that panicky thought that I have or? I mean, that's, a, I, that's yeah. a very good question. I don't know. That did certainly happen after World War II in the United States. And of course, um, you have Margaret Atwood's dystopian novels about that. Um, Again, I mean, again, I'm more because we have such a global world. I'm much more concerned, although obviously being pushed back into the home is bad. I'm much more concerned about these incredibly vulnerable people from war torn countries, um, who yeah. men and women who, um, run the risk of being made even more vulnerable by something like this. Um, and so I, I guess I see, but I, I see that as, as all related. As well, um, I mean, certainly the the women who are uh, migrants, refugees. You know, we've seen what has happened with Syria and uh, what's going on with people who are trying to flee this civil war. Uh, they are often changing their role or taking a back seat, especially when they come to another country where they at least um, can live a bit more safely. Um, and not not have this warfare going on around them, but it, I mean, I would definitely say that that is that is a concern. Um, but I see, I don't know, I see more uh, a bigger issue too around the service industry, which which largely employs the most vulnerable. Um, that that would yeah. be that would be my you know one of my biggest concerns. I come at this from a very different, maybe a different position than you do, because I live in southeastern Ohio, which. Um, although I, I'm teaching in a university here, it's a very poor area. And a lot of people really live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I, I mean, interestingly enough, except for where I live, they, they voted for Donald Trump <laughs> because they, they saw him as saving blue collar jobs. But I'm, I, yeah. and I mean, that's so again, though, what was interesting with that was the, and reinforcing Donald Trump allowed a lot of people to treat um, people from other parts of the world very badly and um, make it rather scary for them to be here. Um, so I think, again, I'm very interested in thinking about um, who are the most vulnerable people in the world right now and how do we, how do we protect them? How do we think about that, that their humanity matters as well? This episode is in two parts. For the next instalment, please go to part two. Thank you.